So I'm going to open this Iowa City City Council work session agenda for Tuesday, April the 23rd, 2019. Our first topic is to review the preliminary traffic accident analysis and related set of recommendations. It's pretty loud, isn't it? Yeah. And, and related set of recommendations. And here, now it's down softer. And here from University of Iowa, Professor Jody Hubbard and Joe Carney. Uh, on regulated research. And then I guess we'll discuss an approach to on-street parking regulations for narrower streets. Okay, so I was just imagining we'd turn things over to, that's right, Kent. Good evening, Kent. Good evening, Mayor, Council. Uh, just quickly, um, as the Mayor just indicated, there's sort of an evening of transportation uh, on the work session. Uh, in addition to a discussion about uh, the collision analyses that's, uh, that was in the IP last week and a discussion of on-street parking, uh, with us this evening are two distinguished professors from the University of Iowa, as you just mentioned. Uh, Dr. Joseph Carney is a professor of the Department of Computer Science, also the interim dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and also uh, with us is Dr. Jody Plummert, who is a professor in the Psychological and Brain Sciences Department. Uh, the two co-direct the Hank Virtual Environments Lab, which houses high-fidelity bicycling and pedestrian simulators, uh, to safely and systematically study perception action problems with real-world consequences, such as how pedestrians and cyclists cross traffic-filled virtual roadways. And I was able to watch just a little bit of what they have to present before the meeting, and I think it'll be pretty exciting. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. So, Jody, are you, you going to take over? The lights a little bit here, so you'll be able to see this a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. So, as Kent said, I'm Jody Plummer. This is my colleague Joe Carney. We co-direct the Hank Virtual Environments Lab at the University of Iowa. Excuse me, Jody. Would you try to speak into the microphone? Can you hear? Let's see. Is that better? Can you hear that? No, it's better. Okay. I'm not used to standing up at a podium <laughs> talking into a microphone. Um, so John Thomas came and spoke with us, I think about a year ago at our lab to hear a little bit about our research. And so this is kind of the outcome, I think, of that meeting is to present some of the work that we do um, to the city council. Um, so broadly speaking, our lab uses virtual environments as laboratories for studying human behavior and it turns out that the human behavior we've been studying quite a bit is road crossing um, with children and adults um, both as bicyclists and pedestrians so our lab creates realistic immersive virtual environments that allow for full body movement um, and we study human behavior using virtual environments so how do child pedestrians and cyclists cross roads with traffic, how do texting pedestrians cross traffic-filled roads, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of them around here. How do peers influence risky road crossing when you have two kids crossing roads together near a school, for example? So just to say a little bit about child, pedestrian, and cyclist injuries nationally, um, so there are about 8,000 child pedestrian and 5,000 child bicyclist injuries um, in collisions with motor vehicles each year in the U.S. 
um, yeah. And motor vehicles are involved in 33% of all bicycle-related brain injuries and in 90% of all fatalities. So it is important for bicyclists, of course, to wear helmets. But the problem is, is that if you have a high-impact collision with a vehicle, having a helmet on probably isn't going to help you. So what we want to do is to prevent those kinds of collisions from occurring. About a third of fatal bicycling crashes occur at intersections, so that's one of the reasons why we're especially interested in this road crossing problem at intersections or at other um, places at the roadway. Uh, also, one of the things we're starting to get into a little bit is looking at how bicyclists and pedestrians operate at night. So it turns out that 75% of pedestrian fatalities happen at night. And in terms of prevention, from my perspective as a developmental psychologist, we want to understand why these collisions occur. What is it about being a child, for example, that puts you so at risk for these kinds of collisions with vehicles? And also, um, we use virtual environment te technology to better understand the risk factors for collisions with vehicles. So it allows us to really test some things about children's vulnerabilities or, say, texting while you're crossing roads that you absolutely could not do in the real world. So we can't put a child at the side of the road and say, hey, see if you can cross the road. And so that's why this virtual environment technology has been so useful, because it's highly realistic, as you'll see in these videos, and also it allows us to very systematically control all the factors we might want to control. So for example, we can control the speed of the cars, which you couldn't do if you were doing it outside in the real world. Uh, we can control the gaps between the cars, so we can kind of look at how that impacts behavior. So mostly what I'm going to do is show videos, because I think that's one of the best ways for you to see what we do. And please feel free to stop me or interrupt if, if there are things that aren't clear or you want to pursue something that um, we're talking about here. So this is a picture of our current bicycling simulator. It's a little hard to see right here, but this is a large screen virtual environment. So there are two side screens that are like 14 feet to a few inches long. So these long side screens, a front screen that's 10 feet wide. And so it's like a three-walled room that the bike is sitting in the middle of. And so we're projecting images with um, projectors, rear projected images. Um, onto all of those screens plus onto the floor. So it's a very immersive kind of experience when you're in this simulator because you have full peripheral vision and um, it's also what we would call completely interactive. So that means is like as you move, you appear to be moving in this virtual environment. So that's um, what the bicycling simulator looks like. So that bike, we're instrumenting the rear wheel. So we are sensing the rear wheel speed, rotation, the steering angle. So what happens is that that information then gets fed into a network of computers that are controlling the projectors that will then project the images onto the screen in real time that correspond to what the rider is doing, whether they're turning, speeding up, slowing down, braking. Or, or so on. 
And this is the same simulator configured now as a pedestrian simulator. So we can take that bike out of there. So now it's just a you know, big platform um, inside the cave. And we can also have people physically walk across a virtual roadway and cross the road that way. Of course, they have to stop when they get to the front screen, and then they have to come back. But they can still move around within the virtual environment. Um, so most of the time, the traffic is in a single lane. So this is um, more simplified than in most real world situations. So it's a single lane of traffic, usually coming from the left-hand side. So the task in most of these studies is for the pedestrian or the bicyclist to be up at the edge of the roadway. They're watching the traffic come. And their job is just to try to cross the road without getting hit by a car. And so then we're also tracking their position at every moment in time. So then later we can go back and we can find out exactly what they were doing in that situation, what size gaps they chose, how they timed their entry into the roadway, how much time to spare, what their margin of safety was um, when they cleared the path of the cars. And Joe, feel free to jump in if there are things I'm forgetting here. OK, so here's an example of, this is actually our older simulator, but um, crossing two lanes of opposing traffic. So he bicycles. He's actually coasting up to <laughs> the intersection. And there's traffic actually in this one in two lanes coming from opposite directions. So he's got to figure out a gap in both sides that he can get through without getting hit. So that kind of gives you an idea of what that bicycling simulator is like. Now, one thing you'll notice is like the visual angles in these um, videos look funny to you, but that's because the camera is back a little bit further. But from where his head is, everything looks like a perfectly normal, continuous environment. So it, it looks very realistic to him. Um, so one of the things that we found, this was a study we published before, um, with this two-way traffic, we had kids, uh, 12 and 14-year-olds and adults do this um, task. And this is something that even at age 14, kids are not that great at being able to do this kind of task. I guess the other thing to note with this work that we do is that we always set up situations where the traffic is continuous, which means that it doesn't stop. And that's something that I want to return to when we kind of get to the end here. And so this is a pretty, this is like crossing one of those roadways where the traffic doesn't have a stop sign, there's no stoplight, and you have to choose a gap to kind of get across. And there are plenty of those places in Iowa City, um, which I'll also show you at the end. Here's a video of a child crossing a road. Um, you can see he has this um, funny hat on. And that's just um, so that we can track the child's position as they're in this um, environment and also make sure that the viewpoint of the scene moves with the child as the child is walking in that environment. So it looks like a little Martian hat, but it's, whoop, yeah, there you go. So he just walks physically across the road. We're having slow motion problems. Hmm. This could be problematic. 
but you can see walking across the road there. Um, so one of the things that we found with um, kids, and we've looked at child pedestrians who are 6, 8, 10, 12, 14-year-olds and adults, one thing that we found is that um, they will often delay their entry into the roadway. So they decide a gap that they want to cross, but then instead of cutting in nice and tightly behind the lead vehicle in uh, the gap that they chose, they wait, they kind of delay, they don't do that nice and precisely. And with adults, we see that they're very good about very precisely timing their movement. The problem with delaying your movement um, into the gap is that then you're going to have less time to spare when you get to the other side of the roadway, and that's critical. So they have a less large margin of safety when they get to the other side of the roadway. So here's an example, if this is going to work, of a child. Jody, yeah. you might mention that the double image is because of stereo. Right, so the images, oh boy, this is really slow motion. Um, the images look double because these are stereo projectors, but the kid is wearing shutter glasses so that everything appears in 3D. Yeah, we're having some problems here. I'm not sure how. I wonder if we should quit out of it and then. Try again, maybe. Yeah. Slow motion, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this will be really slow when the kid is going <laughs> into the roadway. So, so she. not really paying attention. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes it seems like they get, the memory gets, with big videos, kind of gets. Let's see, how can we do it with not? Just click on it there. You, you can just click on the Yeah, down below. Oh, yeah, sorry. running really slow. But now she goes, so right. that's really slow. So you can see that real delay there. Okay, well we'll try this. Um, let me try this in the right no, I'll just do it like this because you can hopefully see. So this is a study looking at how texting pedestrians are crossing roads and also looking at whether vehicle to pedestrian technology might be helpful. So 
I know that Iowa City's been involved with some of like the driverless car stuff, this really high-tech kind of um, technology, and so we cars now have this you know ability to sense the cars that are around them so they're communicating with other cars around them so that also means that cars can communicate with your cell phone theoretically and so in this study we were looking at if you have people who are texting while they're crossing roads which many of them are can you actually send alerts to their to their cell phone that tells them when a safe gap is about to arrive that they could cross or send them a warning that tells them, no, you're trying to step into a gap that's too tight. So we've looked at this kind of technology. The bottom line with this is that it does help people uh, cross the road more safely, they choose larger gaps, but they also show less situational awareness. So they tend to offload their decision making to the device, and so they tend to just rely on the device. They don't watch the traffic anymore, because why would you watch the traffic when your device is going to tell you what to do? Um, whoops, sorry, keep going. Boy, that doesn't want to run at all. Okay. Go back in presenter mode. Okay, well, this is completely died. Um, We've also looked at um, how parents and children cross roads together. So we can put two people in our simulator and ask them to cross together. And we're very interested in how parents might teach kids about crossing roads. And so these are studies where we had parents with their six, eight, 10, or 12-year-old kids. And their job, again, was just to cross the road together, <coughs> decide when they thought it was OK to go so they wouldn't get hit by a car. Um, and we recorded their conversations um, and how they made decisions about crossing the road and how they also performed in the road crossing task. This is also just not going to work. Um, looking at children crossing roads with friends as well. So um, these are, uh, again, two kids who are together crossing roads. And this is also a concern, because when kids are together and crossing roads, does that hurt or does that help them? Basically, what we've found is that when kids are together crossing roads, they don't allow really for the other person, the, the time that's needed for the other person to get across the road. And so they um, are not actually choosing larger gaps like they should be. We've also looked at crossing roads at night, um, as I mentioned earlier. This probably isn't going to work either. Um, this is part of a project that we're doing with Toyota, because Toyota is interested in um, adding adaptive headlamp systems to cars that would actually, with radar, detect when a pedestrian or a bicyclist is at the roadway at night and then shine a box of light around them and project an, a warning icon onto the roadway be in front of them. And so we've been looking at, well, how do bicyclists and pedestrians actually respond to these systems? Um, and here's another um, project that might be of interest to you guys also. So we are also looking at how um, 
cars and bikes interact at intersections depending on bike infrastructure. And so right hook crashes at intersections are an important problem. So you have both the bike and the car going down the roadway, and then the car wants to turn, and the bike wants to go straight. And so those are called right hook crashes, and those um, can result in some um, serious injuries for bicyclists. And so this project is looking at do these protected um, bike paths, which is on the right, help when bicyclists and cars get together at an intersection? It's those kinds of um, protected um, bike paths do have a wider turning radius for the car at the intersection, so that's supposed to give a better angle so that the car can see the bike better and the bicyclist can see the car better as compared to when you have the um, bike path right next to the cars on the roadway. So that's a project that we have ongoing um, to see if that's whether one is better than the other in terms of um, these potential right hook kinds of collisions. So let just want to get to the takeaways here from our work that I think could be helpful for you guys in thinking about pedestrians and bicyclists um, in Iowa City. So one thing that we've found is that child pedestrians don't show mature road crossing skills until at least age 12. So this was actually kind of a surprise to us. And, and again, this is crossing these continuous roads, uh, you know, continuous traffic where they have to choose a gap and get across. It's not like a place where, you know, the cars come to a stop and then you can cross. But in this kind of situation, even with a single lane of traffic, we're not seeing mature pedestrian road crossing until at least age 12 and maybe even age 14. With child bicyclists, they're probably not showing mature road crossing skills until after age 14, especially when you have these complicated situations like you have traffic coming in both directions. The other thing that we found in our research, um, because sometimes we've looked at how pedestrians and bicyclists deal with sort of high density traffic, where they get a whole bunch of sort of small gaps at the beginning that they can't really get across, and then they have to wait for a gap to open up that they can get across. People hate to wait. And we've seen people take far more, both kids and adults take far more risky gaps when you put them in a situation where they kind of have to wait. And I think that's interesting when you're thinking about design of roadways when you have situations where somebody has to wait for a long time, that I think is likely to push them into more risky kinds of behavior. Um, as I mentioned, we're looking at this vehicle-to-pedestrian technology. This could be something that comes down the road, I mean, for Iowa City. Um, sending these warnings to texting pedestrian cell phones increases their safety, but they become less situationally aware. Um, we're also currently working on a project to um, make these cell phone warning systems work for uh, more mobility-impaired individuals, so especially older individuals. So this is a tricky problem because you can't just have a system that has a one-size-fits-all in terms of like, oh, this is going to be enough time for you to get across the road. You really have to take into account for, say, an older pedestrian, how fast can they actually get across the road? Road, and then your warning system has to take that into account. And so we're working on that problem right now. 
So in terms of the things that we've thought about for policy implications, um, one is, I think, this importance of creating crossings where the traffic must come to a stop. And the reason I say this is just because we're seeing that um, it's pretty late in terms of kids' development that they actually can cross these roadways where there aren't stop signs or stoplights for the traffic. So children seem to be at much greater risk of a collision when they're crossing this sort of continuous traffic. Um, the problem here also is that everyone wants to take the shortest route, which means that um, you often are going to end up in situations where you're crossing this sort of continuous traffic. So I thought it would just um, show you where I live, which is in the Twain neighborhood. So Mark Twain School is there on the bottom. I have a pointer here. Um, my house is there in the blue circle there on Ginter Avenue. And so when my kids were in elementary school, they had to cross over Highland. It's not marked there, but you've got Friendly, and then the next one is Highland, and then DeForest. And the problem with Highland is that it's one of these thoroughfare kinds of street where the traffic doesn't stop. And I remember when my kids were, in a, were at that age, there was all that construction that was going on at Lower Muscatine. And so a lot of people were taking Highland as a, as a way to kind of get around that construction. And it was sort of scary to us because it was like, you know, we had these second graders, third grader, fourth grader. Um, crossing Highland where they essentially had to make that decision about, you know, is, is this a safe crossing for me when these cars are not going to stop? So we did ask the school about that, and I think that they came to the city, and then they did put up some signs to kind of say, you know, slow down, kids are crossing here. So then when my kids got older and um, were at City High, then they wanted to cross over uh, Lower Mus Kirkwood and Lower Muscatine, so that uh, Church of Christ, right where it uh, goes into a corner. Um, wait, how's this? Trying <laughs> Sorry. Oh, there it is. So, um, so that nice little tunnel that goes across the Longfellow. Um, into the Longfellow neighborhood. So they wanted, you know, to cross over here so they could get to City High up here. But there isn't a stop sign on Kirkwood Avenue from um, Summit. There's Summit, there's a stop sign now, all the way down to wherever First Avenue here. It's a little hard to see. So that's another example of where for kids to get from our neighborhood over to City High, because they couldn't take the bus, they're too close, they would have to cross one of those sorts of streets. I think another sort of policy implication would be trying to slow traffic in residential and urban areas, so ways that we can do sort of traffic calming, slow the traffic down. Um, again, this is something that John Thomas talked with us about last year, is that there are many streets in Iowa City that are just sort of thoroughfares meant to get cars quickly from one side of town to the other side of town. And when you have like one-way streets, you know, two 
two lanes of one way. You know, people get going fast on those sorts of streets. And so that's another um, kind of policy implication, I think, is trying to slow that traffic down. Um, I don't know about areas where there's high density traffic that you need to avoid these long waits for pedestrians and bicyclists, but that's another thing to think about because um, I think that puts them at risk. Um, possible uh, future vehicle to pedestrian technology for pedestrians um, could be coming along. So that's all I have. Just wanted to thank our lab and um, our many funding sponsors for this work. And we're happy to answer any questions that you guys have or tell you more about what we're doing or what, how it might have implications for transportation here in Iowa City. Thanks, Jody. I assume you're pretty frustrated about the technology, and the, but you did a great job well, of it's explaining fine. It's all fine. That, so it's fine. I don't know why this always happens when you have these big videos, is that they just, like, die. They slow down, yeah. <laughs> okay, folks, you have questions for Jody, or Joe, for that matter? One of my favorite pieces of infrastructure on First Avenue near the east side of Hy-Vee is a pedestrian island. Mm -hmm. um, have you studied those in particular, and if have you been able to quantify what impact, if any, they have on promoting pedestrian safety? Because I know when I walk along there with my with my daughter and my wife, it's cars really seem to get those visual cues. Mm -hmm. It's a very busy street on First Avenue, yep. but I always feel very comfortable. It strikes me that I'd really like to see those expanded where feasible. So have you studied those in particular? Yeah, we haven't studied those in particular, but I think others have looked at that. I tried to go to the uh, national uh, TRB meeting, which is the National Transportation Research Board meeting in Washington every year. And so I, I've learned some from listening to talks there. And the refuges uh, areas in the middle of particularly large mm -hmm. uh, roads uh, do promote safety. And they, 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 they allow you to do sort of a divide and conquer crossing. So you cross one and then you cross the other. And it makes the decision easier for the pedestrian. And I think you're right, it also makes the pedestrian more visible for the driver. It's always amazing to me how far away the cars can see you and they actually slow away in advance than otherwise yeah. would. I'm also wondering, just as a follow-up question to that, you'd mentioned some of the policy implications. Is there sort of a best practices um, uh, policy organization that makes recommendation in particular related to pedestrian safety? In physical infrastructure? Yes there, yes, there are. There are. So, I mean, this is again from Transportation Research Board. And, and I'm, since I'm not a planner, but I know that planners do have documents and they put out recommendations. So, there are best practice documents for pedestrians. And there are a collection of pedestrian and bicyclist organizations now that are putting out recommendations for best practices that promote uh, pedestrian and uh, bicyclist safety. Thank you. And I, we could, if you're interested in any of that, we could pass any of that on to you later if you would help to connect you up to those things. Okay, thank you. I found the right hook uh, when they were um, the car and the, the bicyclists. Um, that was pretty interesting to me. Um, and so I know that you said that there's, you don't know the difference between either having the, the median and the middle. Um, any thoughts on what might be the the best practice, I guess? Well, theoretically, the best practice 
is supposed to have the, are those protected intersections just because they're supposed to create that larger visual angle and so the cars are already like making, they're not in the path of the bike, but they've already turned and so the driver should be able to see the bicyclist a little bit better. But the one thing that we're not sure about this is that when you have these protected bike paths, between intersections when you're riding down the block, it could be that it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, that mm -hmm. the um, pedestrians are in their own little path there, the drivers don't have to think about them. But the big problem, of course, is that when they come together at intersections, they have to be aware of each other. And so we're not exactly sure what we're going to find with this, because it is possible that people would kind of not be thinking about the other, you know, the bicyclists and the drivers to the driver or vice versa. Um, our colleagues over at um, University of Massachusetts are doing it from the opposite side, looking at how drivers are responding to bicyclists, like uh, animated bicyclists that are either in these bike lanes right on the roadway or these protected bike lanes. And, and texting, I, I just wonder um, if you're going to potentially have some um, some device within a car. Would that be potentially conditioning, you know, pedestrians to be texting? You know, if yeah, if yeah. There are so many complicated issues, I think, with that because, like our study, you know, it was it was great in the sense that they did behave more safely. They chose these larger gaps, but then they stopped looking at the traffic because it was sure. just like, now I can rely on my device. And I think that's true in cars too, as you know, you have more of these technologies in the car, you get more used to those and you kind of, you know, aren't maybe quite as vigilant yourself. So all of this technology is, you know, like going full speed ahead. And it's very interesting because it's not clear what the pros and cons are going to be, or maybe a better way to put it is the unintended consequences of some of it. I have lots of questions based on experience here in Iowa City as being both a bicyclist, a driver, well, a bicyclist, a driver, and a pedestrian, because I do all three a lot. So, and I'm wondering if you have tried to examine what happens in these kinds of situations. Like driving into the sunset, going west on Burlington at the spring and fall equinox, when you can't see. <laughs> right, and so we haven't looked at those things specifically, but um, I think that there might be research out there on those kinds of driving conditions. But yeah, there are all those kinds of things we know are a problem, and so I think that argues also for slowing traffic on some of those roadways, because it's like the faster you're going, the more catastrophic uh, collision would be with a pedestrian or bicyclist under those kinds of conditions. Yeah, about 20 years ago, a friend of mine was killed riding a, in a wheelchair, was killed crossing Burlington Street, not at Clinton, but at, um, at Lynn Street, I think, yeah. maybe Dubuque. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so... I think the driver couldn't see her. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the next thing I think of is driving at night when people are wearing dark clothing. Yeah, yeah. And they walk in front of you, and you, I can almost literally not see them at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have you been able to test that any? 
Well, the, so uh, other studies have shown that pedestrians way underestimate their conspicuity when they're crossing roads. It's the uh, what I think of as the I can see you so you can see me phenomena. <laughs> um, and so they r r roughly estimate that the distance that they're visible is about twice what drivers actually report that they are visible. So uh, pedestrians at night, there are a collection of things that are known to, I mean, wearing reflective clothing helps. Wearing uh, reflective clothing, clothing that sort of highlights your your limbs because it it signals biological motion. Motion and people have very uh, deeply they perceive biological motion that's sort of deeply inbred in you. So um, if you can highlight biological motion, that helps a lot. Of course, pedestrian lighting on the sides of roads to make pedestrians more visible is really really a good idea. Um, part of the problem is that headlights focus on the road; they don't focus on the sides of the roads, and so when pedestrians do come out in front of drivers, they emerge from, from the shadows, and so that's a problem. So all of these things, um, the, the, the probably the most dangerous time to walk and bike is at dusk. It's that transition zone that's the worst, but then uh, dead of night is also a serious problem. And the rain. And the rain, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the snow, and... <laughs> yeah, um, how, how about Roundabouts, the larger roundabouts. Have you been able to test them to see how people cross them safely? Um, we haven't, although some of our colleagues have. Uh, roundabouts uh, tend to be great for drivers and not so good for pedestrians and bicyclists. That's just sort of the outcome because um, they they don't have. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there aren't good places for pedestrians to cross at roundabouts. And because the drivers, um, as you enter, I mean, imagine you're entering into a roundabout and turning right, um, your, your attention is completely focused at the entering traffic coming from the left. And so you, you tend not to see things that are on your right. And so the right hook turns if you're, if you're a pedestrian trying to cross on the, on the uh, right side of the driver, that, that can be very dangerous. Um, so yeah, there aren't good solutions. The, some of the solutions people are looking at are sort of pushing the uh, the crosswalk back up the the, the uh, entry yeah. to the to the roundabout, and so it takes them out of the roundabout. But what it means is pedestrians have to take this very long path to get around the roundabout, and that can be safer. But uh, pedestrians hate that. people don't like to walk longer routes. Yeah. I have a couple other questions, but I don't want to monopolize here, so. I was just going to mention one quick thing. We've we've heard some members of the community uh, complaints about jaywalkers. I don't know if in your study you touched on that at all. You mentioned that people oftentimes want to take the shortest distance, and that's what jaywalkers oftentimes do. So aside from citing them, obviously the auto technology, that would be helpful because it would sense that person. But any other ideas or thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting problem because it's hard when, you know, pedestrians and bicyclists don't really obey the rules of the road. I think um, for bicyclists, one of the things that I find most difficult as a driver is them being on the sidewalk and then they're flying into an intersection from a place that you do not expect something moving that fast. You expect pedestrians to be on the sidewalk. Um, and I, you know, and coming out of drives, like coming out of the parking uh, lot over when Seashore parking lot was still open, I almost nailed a bicyclist who just came flying 
there and there were cars parked in front. I couldn't see this person. And you know, those are the kinds of things that also are risk factors. And I don't know how you really encourage you know, bicyclists are funny because they want to behave like a car when it's beneficial for them to do that, but then they want to behave like a pedestrian or use pedestrian, you know, infrastructure when that's useful to them. And so I think that there has to be some awareness on the part of bicyclists and pedestrians of how they can make things really difficult for drivers when they're not kind of following what they're supposed to be doing. Thank you. On that point, in our town, there's ongoing confusion at Market and Lynn and Jefferson and Lynn about whether people on bicycles are pedestrians. Drivers don't know often. Bicyclists don't know. So there's just real confusion there. And then a lot of people just don't stop anyhow right. when they're in the cars. Yeah. Now, what can we do about that? I mean, I think it's not against the law for, like, the bicyclist to be on the sidewalk or, you know, doing that. But the best practice for bicyclists is actually to be on the road. Like, it's actually a safer place, statistically speaking, than to be on the sidewalk. Even though people feel like it's safer on the sidewalk, it's not, especially because of driveways and intersections. So, um, yeah, that's a difficult problem. I know the... You guys have been talking a little bit about Market and Jefferson, you know, being these one way and maybe changing those into opposing um, lanes of traffic. And I think that would be good. One of the things that I, you know, they don't like about those signs that they have in the middle of the roadway with those one way, two lanes of one way traffic is that if a car in the first lane stops for a pedestrian over here, a car can come up alongside and not be able to see that pedestrian at all. And I think that that's a really kind of risky situation, whereas if they were coming from opposing directions, they would see that pedestrian. Um, so that seems like another way to maybe it's not such a hard fix but to make things safer especially because it's so close to the university and there's so much you know pedestrian and bicyclist traffic there are there other questions i'm curious if you've looked into the statistical impact of lane width and street width in terms of the impact on pedestrian safe, safety. Um, I know one of my favorite neighborhoods, the Longfellow neighborhood, has very narrow streets. Now I always feel very comfortable there as a pedestrian. Have, have you been able to, to quantify the impact on the lane and both the lane width and street width in terms of reduction of injuries? Yeah, I, it could be. I We haven't done that kind no. of work, but I think for a pedestrian, it might work. What's hard for bikes, though, is that if you have very narrow streets, then people are and people are parking alongside those streets. You you know that door yeah. dooring problem is really serious, and so um, that's another issue I think to consider with these. You know, everybody wants to have parking alongside their streets, but if it's a very narrow street, then cars can't move over for bicyclists. I mean, I go down Summit Street every day to get to work, and it, that's always a tricky, every time, it's a tricky negotiation with bicyclists who are going down the street um, and the cars, you know, and there's not a lot of room and there's people parking on the sides too. Yeah. 
So sometimes what's good for pedestrians might not be good for bicyclists, I think. Are you ever going to be able to do a simulation of pedestrians and bicyclists trying to get eye contact with the driver? You know what I mean? Because you have to, you have to do that to know whether it's safe to cross and whether um, they're going to Yeah, stop. that's a really good question. I, it, this comes up in lots of different ways. So one of the, I, I'm a bicyclist and um, I have to cross uh, uh, Riverside and Benton to get in. And um, I, I, I will not cross in front of a car if I can't look the driver in the eye to make sure they see me. Um, and one of the problems with uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, uh, autonomous vehicles don't have drivers, and so they don't have eyes, so you can't look an autonomous vehicle in the eye. And this is one of the concerns that people have as they're looking at interactions between pedestrians, bicyclists, and the and the upcoming autonomous vehicles, is how can, how can pedestrians judge the intention of the autonomous vehicle and whether the autonomous vehicle is aware of them or not. And there are various people, actually we're gonna do a study coming up this fall looking at putting um, simulated eyes on the car. Some other people have done this so that the car itself can have eyes and sort of simulate eye contact in order to, to show, to make that link. Um, we're also doing a, a project now uh, with the National Advanced Driving Simulator to connect our pedestrian simulator with our driving simulator so we can have a driver in their driving simulator see our pedestrian crossing the road. Um, and part of that will be, we're not it's a ways yet, but um, part of that will be to try to, to, to create um, an opportunity for them to have eye contact. To do that, we need to create avatars, and those avatars have to simulate. We have to be able to track the motions of the drivers and the pedestrian, and then create avatars in the other device that, that mimic the motions and, and can show the eye contact. So that's a really challenging technical problem at the moment, but one that we're working on. I guess I personally have one last question. <clears throat> Back to the real world <coughs> instead of the avatar world. So I'm thinking about how to, how to sorry, I'm suddenly losing my train of thought. Um, even, it happens to mayors. Mayors lose their train of thought. So. <laughs> okay, back to the real world. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So uh, let's see. Uh, Sorry, it's it's completely gone right now. Come back, you know, thirty seconds or something. Are there other questions? I, I just want, would would like to mention how I, I don't know if you recall how I met, where it was introduced to Jody's work. I was watching a video of a talk being given in Ireland by the founder of the Twentieth Plenty movement, and. Um, he referenced Jody in his presentation, you know, and I was just, wow, <laughs> you know, someone in, in Iowa City who's being referenced in this presentation in Ireland over traffic safety. So I, I reached out and uh, had a great conversation with Joe and, and Jody as a result of that, but it's, it's funny how s certain things work out. I do remember my question. So if I heard you correctly earlier, Jody, I think you said that 75 nationwide, 75% roughly of pedestrian vehicle collisions occur at night? Fatalities. Fatalities, yeah, okay. Pedestrian fatalities. Uh, where's Kent? Kent, uh, is that consistent with Iowa City? We don't have any really many fatalities, though, so that 
maybe we could just talk about collisions. Yeah, uh, we do have that data. I'd have to look in my pile here, but we do have that available. Uh, it comes through the collision um, reports that the police identify and then send to the DOT. So we do have that. Okay. And I'll well, see if I can find well, it. Mainly I'm wondering, what would you say are the most important things we could do to avoid those kinds of fatalities? Or well, even the, bad collisions? I think, I think that you know, making sure that there's adequate street lighting is probably one of the biggest things is just to, because that's going to create more visibility. Um, that's not always feasible, so I don't know if there are other programs where you can encourage kids, college students to wear more reflective clothing and that sort of thing. I mean, it's... I'm amazed at how many people, you know, people like to wear black colors, you know, and they just, I do too. And so then you end up not being visible at all at night. And it's a very strange thing where you can see the car perfectly because this bright light's shining on you and it feels like, yeah, we're seeing each other. And that driver has no idea that you're there. Um, so helping people kind of understand that I think is important. I do see bicyclists a lot in Iowa City with, you know, pretty good lighting on their bikes, um, you know, more of these high intensity um, lights. And I think that that's a really good thing that people are doing more of. But just, you know, for on a defensive side for pedestrians and bicyclists, they really have to, you know, be aware of this problem that drivers just don't see them. Right. Okie doke. Uh, if there are no more questions, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and sure. sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Yep. It's been very helpful. Happy to thank do Thank you. That. Yep. And please, if you guys have any uh, questions afterwards, things that you think of, you you can email us anytime. We'd be happy to follow up on things. And if you want to come and see a demo sometime. Yeah, the, be a participant in our research. <laughs> right. That sounds like fun. Bruce, we're, we're counting on you. <laughs> okay, well, there were several other items uh, to touch on, so Kent, are you going to come up and help us? Yeah, thanks, Kent Ralston, Transportation Planner. Uh, if okay with you, sh I, I think it would be nice to transition into the collision analysis mm -hmm. portion. Uh, the work that um, Dr. Carney and Dr. Plummer did is a good segue into ours, not so much in identifying solutions just yet, but identifying the problems. Um, in your packet was a reposting of, a, of our collision analysis that we discussed back in January. Uh, where I gave a brief presentation on the report. It's the 2015 to 2017 traffic collision analysis. Uh, again, that was reposted in your, excuse me, in your April 18th info packet. Uh, for many years, the collision analysis has been completed as part of a metro area uh, collision analysis. But as I mentioned, uh, again, back in January, we completed it exclusively for Iowa City this time as it showed up in the, the council strategic planning efforts. 
the report ranks all intersections and mid-blocks with three or more collisions using the DOT's uh, weighted formula that includes raw numbers of collisions, uh, the severity of collisions, and the collision rate given the location uh, that we're talking about. Uh, while not yet complete, staff will complete an analysis of all of those locations uh, sometime hopefully this summer, um, and that's where the analysis and the research that the University of Iowa is doing uh, could come in very handy. Uh, the things we will look for in our research and in our uh, field reviews uh, will relate to signs, pavement markings, uh, we can do speed studies if we think appropriate, uh, signal timings, and then we can even do more infrastructural changes like road diets and some of the things that we've uh, been working on with you in the past. Uh, what is shown on the screen are the top 10 collisions by quadrant. So this is actually the top 40 collisions, uh, collision locations in Iowa City by quadrant. Uh, what is on the next slide are actually the locations of of those, uh, those different uh, locations. Uh, there's 171 total intersections in Iowa City that had three or more collisions over this three year period. Uh, what I want to, I don't want to belabor the point, but what I did want to drive home is uh, this slide that shows collisions between 2013 and 2015 and then 2015 to 2017. Uh, although we have 171 locations with three or more collisions and certainly we have some locations that need work, uh, we're doing pretty well when we compare ourselves to the top 10 largest communities in the state as well as our uh, sister communities here in the metro area. We're actually doing pretty well. Uh, you can see North Liberty uh, has the lowest number of collisions per thousand uh, people, um, and I'm not sure how they're doing that, but they're doing very well. Um, and then there's sort of that cluster in the 40 to 50 to 60 range uh, that we fall into. So although, there, like I said, there's work to do, um, I think we, we should be proud of the work we're doing and, and we're doing pretty well. Uh, I would also argue that in Iowa City, um, logic would tell me that we have a little bit bigger challenge than some of these other communities because of the commuting traffic that we have. Because of the hospital, because of the university, because of sporting events and so on, uh, we get a much more, I think, diverse crowd that comes from all over the state, uh, you know, in our community where that may not be true in some of the other communities shown uh, in this diagram. Uh, next, at, at your request, um, we also posted in your April 18th info packet some additional analysis that was requested back in January with respect to bicycle and pedestrian collision data. Again, ranking that data using the Iowa DOT's formula of uh, raw collisions, severity collisions, and collision rates. Um, what we note are that there's 15, uh, and it's in your packet, that there's 15 total locations in the community that have three or more collisions uh, that involve bicycles and or pedestrians. Uh, what is shown here are the pedestrian locations. So there's actually, actually only three locations in town that had three or more pedestrian collisions um, when we did our, our analysis. And that again is between 2015 and 2017, so three years of data. Uh, the next slide uh, are the bicycle collision locations. So there's four locations that showed up that had three or more uh, collisions. And again, similar to the vehicular collision data, we will also be going out this summer uh, looking into each one of these locations and seeing if we can address uh, any issues that we find. Um, one of the things we will look at, Mayor, you asked about earlier, are uh, time of day and specifically nighttime uh, collisions. Uh, while it's not in the actual collision analysis that's in your info packet, we have that information available and we'll take that with us out into the field and try and identify what those issues might be. Uh, overhead street lighting is always um, one of those things we look at. The city has a policy to have overhead street lighting at every intersection, which I believe we do. Uh, there might be a few we're missing, but I believe we do have some overhead street lighting at every intersection. Uh, and we certainly have been uh, increasing some of that with the change to LED lighting over the last few years. 
That is what I had uh, for tonight. I didn't want to get it too far into it since we discussed some of this uh, back in January, but I'm happy to answer any questions you might have about the analysis. One thing that comes to mind is the prominence of Clinton and Burlington Street. If you combine the, uh, the pedestrian and bicycle <clears throat> collisions uh, with cars, uh, that particular in intersection stands out. Yeah. And I've had many conversations over the past several years with Charlie Funk at Midwest One about that. And he always tells me, take a look at that intersection, Jim. I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it's a bad place. There are lots of accidents there. So uh, I'm hopeful that the restriping, et cetera, is almost finished, at least right there at the intersection, the, the, the last bit of construction work, and then right. the rest will be done. Yeah. And hopefully that will improve the situation. Yeah. What's your, what's Cl your sense? Clinton and Burlington, Mayor, is that the intersection we're talking what about? Did I say? Clinton and Burlington, is that right? That's what I yeah. meant. What did so, I say? No, I think that's what you said. Oh, I just yeah. wanted to make sure. So, yeah, so um, yes, the project should be done uh, yet this spring, early summer. Uh, one thing I think that will help there is the addition of turn lanes, which is part of the project for north and, or excuse me, yes, north and southbound traffic. Because now we'll have turn lanes, we should be able to have some uh, protected left turn. So I'm not sure if they'll be protected permanently at this point are just protected, but when you get the green arrow, um, there wouldn't be a conflict between pedestrians and uh, vehicles, at least during that protected phase. So I think that could help the situation. And in addition to looking at nighttime collisions or time of day collisions, we'll also look into what those specific collisions, how they occurred, the actual cause of the collision, and if they're right hook collisions, left hook collisions, those are the things we'll look into um, when we actually try and address some of the signal timing issues at this intersection and others as well. And you indicated that we're not necessarily, we're identifying the problem, not necessarily the solution. Um, but do you see staff, after you have an opportunity to evaluate uh, all these various issues in these high collision intersections, coming back with some solution infrastructure, you know, capital improvement project, or, or, or what do you see happening? Yeah, we certainly can. Okay. Um, I mean, we'll certainly be tracking what we're doing. And we've already done a few things. Um, Highway 6 shows up. Uh, if I go back here for collisions, you can see that, it's a little hard here, lights go off. Um, I failed to mention, but you know, logic would also tell you that most of our high collision locations are where we have the most traffic. Uh, same with bikes and peds. Um, so you can see in this, uh, primary, it's a little hard to see, but um, quadrant four and quadrant three, uh, the dots that, that follow the dots that follow through the corridor there are Highway One, Highway Six. You can see Burlington Street, Gilbert Dubuque. It's really all of the locations, all of the arterial streets that you would guess would be high, are higher. So, do, do we need a waiver on anything we'd be doing in Burlington from the State Department of Transportation, or how, how would that work if we had a proposal for it, that? It depends what it is. If it's signal timings, we usually just alert them to the change, uh, and they don't usually weigh in. Uh, infrastructure changes certainly would would take more than that. Okay. Ken, you, on the um, more recent report, there's reference to the countermeasures mm -hmm. that staff would be um, considering right. in terms of the recommendations. Who, who developed those countermeasures and when? So those are sort of a generic set of countermeasures that they won't be only what we're looking at, but it's sort of a generic set of countermeasures and then some of the um, responses to whatever it is. Uh, those are FHWA countermeasures. Okay. So those, those are sort of generic countermeasures that we get from some of our literature. I, I know I brought this up the last time we, talk, we talked about this, you know, and looking at some of the countermeasures, uh, you'll find widening the lanes, um, prohibiting parking, creating one-way streets. Um, 
so, so I hope in terms of the countermeasures, we, we also look at uh, NACTO and, of course, <clears throat> Jeff Speck's new book, Walkable City Rules, you know, which there are 101 ways in which he recommends creating the, you know, addressing and, and promoting the walkable city. Because um, I think they may be perhaps more relevant and up-to-date, um, you know, as we move forward. And I, and I think, you know, the presentation we just saw was a really good uh, sort of preliminary in, in terms of understanding um, some of the principles of that Vision Zero concept, which, you know, I brought up when we were in the budget session. And, and Vision Zero, at its foundation, talks about how collisions are preventable, first of all. So even though relative to other cities in Iowa, you know, we, we can and should be able to reduce these collisions, because in my view, the United States as a whole, <laughs> you know, is not the greatest measure to compare oneself to. I mean, if we were to compare ourselves to cities that have a more balanced approach toward mobility, I think, you know, we'd see the difference. They also, Vision Zero also acknowledges that human error is a significant factor in mobility and traffic safety. And so it's, it's the vulnerable in particular who I think are most at risk. And to, to sort of keep them in mind um, you know, as our reference point in terms of what, what will truly be a safe you know, safe city in terms of our mobility. Yeah. No, I agree with all those points. Um, and, and with respect to the countermeasures, what, what is in the report, as I mentioned, are, are sort of generic, but we'll certainly get more creative than that. Um, the other thing I do caution you about, though, is, is not to get our hopes up too high. And I only say that because when we go look at Highway 1 and 6, for instance, there's not a lot of bicycle and pedestrian um, interaction, to be honest. I mean, there are some crossings, and, and some of those uh, could certainly be made better. Um, but when you go look at those corridors, being that they are still part of the state highway system, there's only so much we can do in terms of tweaking signal timings, um, making sure that we have backs on all the signals so you can actually see the color of the signals better, um, adjusting the ped signal timings, freshening up markings, signage, and so on and so forth. But it gets at some point a little bit hard for us to be creative enough to actually make some of those corridors better. So um, I'm more confident in sort of the downtown area than I am some of those, uh, well, the state highways, for instance. So it gets a little bit tougher, but, um, but I'm hopeful we can... We can certainly make. Speaking of getting good. hopes up, Big Grove is a very popular establishment, and a lot of people bike and walk there. Um, is it is it at all possible to have better um, pedestrian and bicycle access on that South Gilbert? Because I think of you know when I was thinking of that traffic study that that's really my fam family on, on occasion when we go there, um, where you are looking for those gaps. And I always really you know my wife and I always sort of bracket our daughter. So if someone gets hit, we do. But is that is that possible to to increase that or is that on the horizon? Because that is a very popular area, and uh, I, it just strikes me that with the pedestrian component to that, that that and biking, that that is an issue that we really mm -hmm. need to look at. Yeah, I think there's two projects that come to mind. One is that in the capital improvements program, we have tentatively scheduled the road diet for 
most of Gilbert Street. Yeah. That section, I think, um, we've talked about in the past, gives us a little bit more trouble because it's the highest volume yeah. uh, section of Gilbert, which is also probably why you're ex experiencing some difficulty. Um, the other one that comes to mind is that there's actually some, it's not in the capital improvements program yet, but some idea to reconstruct that section between Highway 6 and Kirkwood as part of the Riverfront Crossings plan. And there's actually some um, design, well, some preliminary concept and, and some design work that's been done included in the Riverfront Crossings plan. So I think there is definitely some things on the horizon that could help uh, that particular section. Good stuff. Just, just to add on to that, <clears throat> excuse me. The when we're doing rezonings down in that area, we are um, requesting and requiring additional right of way. So, for example, when when Big Grove, Pleasant Valley, the lumber yard redeveloped, um, we did get, I believe, it was an extra 20 feet of, of right of way for those corridors that we can't really put to use now uh, because we don't have the entire stretch of, of the block. Um, but as property continues to redevelop there, we'll, we'll get that extra right of way, and that will allow us the flexibility to look at protected bike lanes, um, any number of street improvements that could help that area. It's more of a longer-term project, but at least we're preparing for that. Um, I would just, oh, go ahead. Oh, looking at Burlington and Highway 6, kind of as, um, as you said, they were kind of the higher intersection, excuse me, the higher uh, um, collision sites, are we look, going to be looking at those um, streets as a whole or by intersection um, when we're trying to make these improvements? So a little of both. Um, we also do mid-block collisions. I don't have it in the, the presentation for tonight, but also included were mid-blocks. So we'll be focusing primarily on the intersections if it's the intersection issue, but if it's a mid-block issue, um, we'll be looking at that stretch between it. Okay, so a combination of both. I'm just going to comment that these microphones are out of whack tonight. <laughs> Um, you know, we spent over an hour talking about collisions and everything, and I think it's it's good information and good to kind of review this and get us in front of us. But I think sometimes it's easy to, when you spend this much time talking about things, some, about one particular topic, for people to maybe get the impression that this is a huge problem. And I would just comment, I don't think we have a huge problem. When, when I looked at these and saw that we had only three intersections that had had three or more pedestrian uh, collisions, uh, three or more bicycle collisions, I thought that was pretty good. I was kind of surprised. I mean, it, it, we have a lot of intersections. We have a lot of bicyclists and obviously a lot of cars. I, I think our numbers in terms of the vehicle collisions, as you said, were down maybe in that lower third, lower 40%, whatever, compared to a lot of the cities. I'm not saying we shouldn't improve. Definitely want to work on improving. But like I say, we don't spend an hour talking about topics, usually unless there's some really major issue. And I think we're actually doing pretty good. We can always do better. So. Any other questions for Kent? I've had some comments. It doesn't show on here because it's not one of the top ten, but um, some business owners along South Gilbert and Stevens Drive that, uh, although in your data it did show that at, at uh, Gilbert and Stevens and Gilbert and Southgate, there were, I believe, at least four collisions, uh, and people along there are concerned about that, and um, so they were looking at solutions to that, whether that would be a stop sign, but obviously I think that should be on the radar, too, as well as the locations that have uh, ten or more. Yeah, thanks for that. And I, and I think should the road diet move forward uh, in the next few years, I think that will help both those intersections as well. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, great. Thank you, Kent. Thank you. So we can get off this traffic thing, huh? <laughs> parking next? Parking On would be parking? good. Yes, thanks. Okay.
I'll try to be brief. Uh, okay, so in also in your April 18th info packet was a memo to Jeff Fruin dated April 15th on on-street parking prohibition policy. Uh, what I wanted to do was quickly um, just mention that the question of how staff recommends on-street parking prohibitions I think has come up at a few meetings over the last six months or so. Um, and the memo outlines the current on-street parking prohibition policy we, we typically use. Uh, for this um, for this presentation, I think we should focus on, on streets that are 28, less than 28 feet wide, which is what I'm calling a narrow street. That's not necessarily true, but a narrow street. Uh, for streets that are 28 foot wide or wider, typically parking on both sides just isn't uh, an issue. There's enough uh, space between curb to curb that we don't worry about that too much. So for the, for the sake of tonight's conversation, we're focusing primarily on uh, less than 28 feet wide, back of curb to back of curb. Uh, for background, the city's current subdivision code is very clear on on-street parking prohibitions um, for newly constructed streets streets and for local and collector streets that are wider than 28 feet wide again parking on both sides is fine less than 28 feet wide it's restricted to one side uh, as, as part of the subdivision code uh, however where the code is not clear uh, is for uh, parking regu regulations for existing streets and the code simply states that parking can be prohibited along one side of a street when a street does not exceed 30 feet in width and can be prohibited on both sides when it does not exceed 20 feet in width that's really all we have um, there are a lot of specific um, parking restrictions. You can't park in front of fire hydrants, too close to intersections and that sort of thing. But generally for the actual on-street parking, uh, it's not nearly as specific as it, as it is for new streets. Uh, with that, I want to quickly just run through the bullet points that were in the memo for how we uh, currently identify parking prohibitions. Uh, first, I want to mention that on local and collector streets, on-street parking prohibitions are generally uh, limited to one side of the street. It's very rare where we have a street that does not have parking on either side. Now, again, that's for streets less than 28 feet wide, uh, discounting most of our arterial streets being wider than that. Uh, second, when a request for a, pro, a request to prohibit on-street parking is generated by management of a city department, uh, we typically look at that very briefly, and then we bring it to you all for action. So, for instance, if the street superintendent says that he cannot get a garbage truck uh, down a street, that's obviously an issue for that neighborhood. We'll go out and make sure there's nothing else that could be done. But assuming they're still parking on both sides of the street, we'll bring some sort of parking prohibition to you all for for action. And I do want to stress that we. Typically, we'll, well, we will always follow up with the manager of that division rather than just uh, getting a call from a snowplow driver or somebody that's frustrated with the on-street parking situation. So we'll make sure we follow up with the superintendent uh, of that division. Uh, next, when a request to prohibit parking is generated by a resident, we'll conduct an initial review of the existing conditions. Uh, if the street's less than 28 feet wide, we'll document when vehicles park directly across from each other. And if we can document that, then we'll bring it to you all for uh, action. If we can't document the vehicles parked directly across the street from each other, it might be sort of a checker pattern where they jockey from side to side. That's not so much of an issue for us. It's just when they're parking directly across from each other, um, the actual width of the street gets to be problematic for, for large vehicles. Uh, when a request to prohibit parking is generated by resident and staff deems that there's no action necessary, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing we'll do for that neighborhood. We'll actually uh, request that a, um, a petition be generated by the neighborhood with 50% or more signa signatures from the affected area. Then we'll actually do a mailback survey. And if a, a supermajority of that neighborhood wants to move forward with a parking prohibition, then we'll bring it to you all uh, for action. 
Uh, I also want to mention that when we're doing these things, um, we also consider street topography, number of access points, surrounding land uses, parking prohibitions um, that are already in place, and that uh, if there's anything else that might make it more difficult for homeowners. So we take all of that into account um, when we're doing our field reviews. In terms of solutions, um, what's shown on the slide, uh, the, the city currently has approximately 140 streets that are less than 28 feet in width, uh, comprising of more than 18 miles of roadway that currently allow parking on both sides of the street. So for this slide, um, all of the streets are that are colored are either 24 or 25 feet wide, back a curb to back a curb, and the ones in red, uh, show where there's parking on both sides. So there's about 140 of those. Um, we also have two other uh, maps that were included in your packet, but this is primarily the bulk uh, of those streets. In fact, over 100 of the 140 are 25 foot wide back to back. This image shows um, an example of how these quarters function if vehicles are parked directly across from each other and a large vehicle is present. Uh, this happened to be bar borrowed from a, a community in Illinois, um, but I actually went through and sort of measured these out and it is accurate. Um, this is exactly the situation we would have if you had this situation on any of those streets that were colored in red on the previous slide. So this is the kind of issue that, we're, that we take uh, pretty seriously. Um, the other thing I would caution you about is that these two vehicles, uh, the private vehicles, seem to be parked right up next to the curb, um, which isn't always the case. And in fact, our code allows a vehicle to park 18 inches away from the curb. So if both of those vehicles were parked 18 inches away from the curb, you can take three more feet away from this uh, scenario, or three more feet away from the fire truck in this case that's trying to navigate the street. So that's the scenario that we take very seriously and, and would bring to you for some action. Uh, in terms of solutions, uh, I think to ensure passage of large vehicles, um, we can do two things. One, we can continue down the existing policy where each request that we get, we basically look at in context of the situation and then, and then bring a um, solution to you. Or we could proactively limit parking to one side of all of those 140 streets that, that we've been discussing. Um, I think the issue or the disadvantage with sort of that blanket prohibition um, are that we may increase vehicle speeds where some of the parked cars, as, as John Thomas mentioned uh, previously, can help calm traffic. Um, and we may cause some potential hard, hardships for folks that already have a limited amount of parking. So there are a few issues with, with doing that. Uh, there's also a cost involved. I've estimated I think we, we probably spend less than $5,000 a year um, actually addressing these issues where we will bring one, an issue where we're, we're asking to prohibit parking and actually follow through with that. It's, it's something like less than $5,000 a year. Uh, I also estimated that if we chose sort of the second path and did a blanket prohibition, uh, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $65,000 as a ballpark figure to, to do that. Um, our recommendation is that we would continue down the path we're currently using um, because I don't think we get, we probably get a handful or, or less than a dozen a year requests for a parking prohibition. Um, in some cases, we're getting requests to add parking to streets. So, um, so I don't see a, a compelling reason to do a blanket prohibition, um, but we certainly could. I also had that discussion with the fire chief, and he also did not think we needed to go down the route of a blanket prohibition um, just yet. With that, I'm happy to answer any questions you have, and uh, if staff could get some direction, that would be helpful. Any questions for Je for Kent? No, but if he wants direction, I would say I would agree with your recommendation to stay the course. I, I think to do a blanket one is going to invite all kinds of uh, dissent within the community. 
with with an unneeded pro trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist in many locations. I think if if vehicles can't get through, either our staff is going to let us know and or the residents are going to let us know. So I think to continue to address it um, on a complaint basis like that, I think makes the most sense. The, the only, I, I agree, I think the existing policy makes the most sense in terms of getting the benefit of, of having the cars parking on both sides, which is does have a traffic calming effect. Uh, I, I am aware, and I there's asked Jeff to include it in our late handouts. Uh, there is a, an alternative to parking only on one side of the street. I brought it up, I think, at our last meeting, and that's this, the notion of a checkerboard approach, where you um, you, you basically are, are trying to avoid a situation where park cars will park opposite one another, and so you you space the parking. Uh, in such a way that um, it alternates from one side of the street to the other. So if you if you're, can imagine sort of looking down a street with that checkerboard pattern, you get a feeling that the effective roadway width is relatively narrow, so that helps promote traffic calming. My, what I was suggesting is that um, in addition to the idea of having a one-site-only approach that uh, we consider the idea of the checkerboard um, and and see to you know just offer it as an option um, as we move forward on this so that uh, the residents would have an alternative if they chose to consider it um, you know it, it, it it's listed in in the NACTO street design standards as an option um, it seemed to me a, a reasonable one, and it would pr preserve the benefit of the uh, parking on both sides, which has to do with traffic calming. If you if you limit them to one side, there's the potential parking to one side. There's the potential for the um, the the speeds to increase because the, of what's left in the roadway for for driving. So. It seemed to me there was no harm in drawing that approach, and I talked to to uh, Kent before the meeting, and, and he seemed to agree that it's um, something we can explore. Basically, uh, test it, see see if there's interest in the community for that uh, that option. Do you currently have the discretion to do that if you would want to? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I, I think what sort of what John is describing is sort of a, almost a slalom uh, effect yeah. as you get on the street. Um, yeah, I think we do. When we bring those prohibitions to you all for action, we can clearly just spell out exactly what our plan is, and I don't think there's any reason uh, why we couldn't. Are there any, John, are there any, in your imagination, are there any particular streets, streets that have a speed problem that could be alleviated through this checkerboard kind of design? Well, I mean, the street that comes to my mind would be um, a straight shot street uh, with long distances between the intersections would would be the most likely uh, candidates for potential for speeding. Um, and then topography could also come into play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think... <coughs> Just you know, just observationally, when I travel around town, I can see where you know the one, there are certain segments of one-way streets that I've walked or driven on or bicycled on where it seemed there was the potential for the the one-way or one-side-only parking option of generating higher speeds. 
One, one street that's always sort of concerned me, and I'm looking at it right now, that Church Street doesn't seem like an arterial. Um, I drive up on the north side quite a bit, and I also walk it quite a lot with my dogs. And um, that always just seems like a much busier street than the adjacent street. So um, I, I would agree to sort of stay the course. But in, the, in terms of identifying what parts are currently prohibited where you can't park on either side, Identifying where would it make more sense to do parking on one side? It's my understanding in the evening there is parking allowed on one on one side of a portion of church. Um, so that's something I would like to see because I think in terms of the traffic calming, and I think even in some of our more suburban areas of town, we've had a lot of requests for speed bumps. And it would be nice if we could identify, um, you know, parking is one way to alleviate some of the speed concerns as opposed to just the speed. And those streets are so wide um, that I just feel like, well, we can maybe correct that with some one-sided parking. Um, so that's at least something I think would be good to possibly explore. But church does seem to be a street that doesn't feel like an arterial, but such as it is. Yeah, and when I was talking to John before the meeting, um, I certainly don't think there's any harm in trying it. There may be some drawbacks to the, to the sort of checkerboard um, style parking, uh, garbage collection, snow plowing, you know, those sort of things. Um, more signs, which people typically don't like in their yards, I found out over the years. But, uh, you know, there's certainly no harm in trying. Um, at this point, I don't know what the benefits would be, but that's why we could try. Yeah, I, I, I'm always um, supportive of the idea of case by case and um, giving, giving the residents an option. I think that point that John makes case by case, uh, there are some just small side streets. I'm thinking of one in, in my neighborhood that there's a facility that uh, has events uh, like every Friday. And it's a very narrow side street. Uh, and folks were parking on both sides of the street, clear down to the stop sign. But uh, the city came around and added no parking corner to here signs for quite a distance on both sides of the street. And that really helped because before, barely one car could get up and down. There was a little bit of a hill. And it, it was very dangerous. So there are other options besides prohibiting it on the entire street. Yeah, and that's sort of the reason we don't proactively go out and, and look for these issues. Um, we use it as a case-by-case -case basis, context-sensitive, and, and we try to do a lot of that is just pull, rather than remove parking altogether, is just pull parking back from the intersections, open them up a little bit, uh, increase visibility, and, and hopefully reduce collisions at the same time. I'm not sure if you get any emergency vehicle concerns about any of these streets. We do have um, some of the streets that have alleys where you know the garbage truck isn't actually going down the middle of the street, which would be an indicator to the city there's a problem with this street. So that's the only thing that I you know kind of question uh, in my mind is um, you know emergency vehicles making sure that we are certain <laughs> that, you know, certain neighborhoods, you know, maybe the, you know, people are always parking 18 inches away um, or something like that. But making sure that, you know, those um, emergency vehicles would not have a hard time getting through. But that's the only thing that I wanted to add. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And the first call I always make is to the fire chief to make sure he's okay. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> He'll let you know. Yes, he will. Okay, thanks, Kent. I think we probably need to move on so we can hit on any agenda <coughs> items that perhaps need to be discussed right now. I'm going to bring up one. It has to do with the rezoning of North Dubuque Street, and I don't intend to discuss anything substantive. I just want to ask a question about process. So it's my understanding right now that two of us have recommended some 
uh, additional conditions pertaining to the rezoning. First of all, I want to know if anyone else has recommended any, and, and those two have had written material appear in our packets. So I want to know if anybody else has any conditions they want to recommend or that they intend to recommend. They're really conditions to the rezoning. I just had one, it was more kind of a consideration on the part of the developers. Um, it goes along, I think, with all your environmental issues was um, that there's going to be potential for a lot of pavement and I would like to encourage them to do um, permeable pavement if that's possible. Per permeable. Per per Am I saying that right? Oh, okay, so <laughs> when, I mean. when John's discussing his proposed conditions, right. maybe you can chime okay. in because there's a pretty tight uh, relationship there. Right. Anyone else? Are we gonna discuss, like, say, I read John things, like, have, like, a lot thing. Are we gonna discuss each single one and vote for it separately? No. Or are we no. gonna do the whole thing? I, I think probably not because we also have, we, the council, has also received a memo from Jeff which made a suggestion, which provided information about what the developer owner is willing to do but also has made some suggestions about how many of the items recommended in John's memo in particular are actions that the city staff, the city could take, uh, not so much items that should be a part of a conditional rezoning. Yeah, just real quick, um, the developer tonight will um, describe some changes uh, that they are um, willing to make uh, after hearing some of the concerns at, at the first meeting. I do think that will address a number, the changes that they will describe tonight will will address a number of those concerns. Um, and also I would encourage um, all of the um, uh, all of the conditions that are focused on the, or the proposed conditions focused on the roadway, that we take that up with their tax increment financing request. At this point, the road is not designed. They have the road layout uh, engineered, but the actual road design will not, is not complete. We will complete that road design as part of the development agreement process so we can it's helpful to know exactly what you want out of that road design but we don't necessarily need to place conditions on the on the rezoning to to achieve those and also i think the housing is going to come separately right yeah they they will uh, have a presentation tonight to answer questions about the housing uh, that, that were raised okay, okay so <coughs> related to this the, the third item that i recommended was not a condition, but it was a suggestion that has to do with us uh, scheduling a work session. So I think this is a good moment to bring that up. So I seek your advice about this. It, and it pertains to future large-scale developments. Namely, should we amend city code to require the staff and applicant to consider the effects of the proposed projects on future carbon emissions and absorption capacity, carbon absor absorption capacity, and to take actions that will help us achieve the city's carbon emission reduction goals. So I'm just asking if there's support for putting this topic on our work session, our list of pending work session topics. Yeah, I'd support that. I support that, but I know that you are requesting this for the current no, rezoning. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not, Maz. What I'm talking about right now is about other future, other future yes. topics. Anything yeah. for the future, I'm supporting it because it has to be on the code so we can talk about it really strongly. Okay, so I think I'm hearing support for that, majority support, that is. Okay, thank you. 
Are there other agenda items that people want to bring up? Yes, uh, corresponding. Yeah. Uh, second. Well, Maz is finding that. I, I just had one question about the owner's um, thoughts on council not being involved with like the design. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, the, the roadway design? I don't think it was the roadway. It was the actual building. Oh, the, the, the renderings and elevations. That was one of the, the um, recommendations. Well, one, it was talked a little bit about in planning and zoning, is my understanding, but it was also included in Councilman Thomas's recommendations, and that would be a condition that would require um, the renderings of the of the buildings to be approved by, I believe you had planning and zoning commission, but some some legislative body of the of the city. Um, the, the developers are um, reluctant to agree to that. Um, it adds a significant amount of time and cost and uncertainty um, to the approval. Um, they would rather rely on the existing design standards that we have in the code. Um, also with the rezoning, they're essentially agreeing to uh, the footprints of the building that you see in the plan. Those can't change significantly without coming back to council. They understand that. But that rendering's a whole other layer of approvals that they have to get. And that just uh, brings some uncertainty um, to the project as they look to sell those lots or develop those lots. They don't have that final approval that they know that the city will approve. They'd rather work directly from our design standards and, and move forward with that certainty, knowing that if they submit something in compliant with those standards, it'll be approved, they'll get their building permit. I do understand that as far as the design standards. Um, thanks for explaining that. Now, are there design standards for modular homes or manufactured homes? Mm. There's gonna be, there's gonna be some, it's not nearly as detailed as our multifamily design standards, but I, I would say that if you have design concerns with the manufactured homes, that would be appropriate to take up tonight. So okay. if there's yeah. during, concerns during about meeting. roofs or porches, th that's going to be tonight. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to talk about corresponding A, A, B, and C. All of them talk about the ban of the bed store sales and. I, I really would like to know if Jeff have any idea how we can respond, or can we just, uh, as animal control, to look into this and give us some recommendation, or what we gonna do about this? I'm sorry, which which item are you? Items eight B and C, which all of which oh. have to do with quote puppy mills. Uh, two of them say you should do something about banning this retail sale of pets sourced from large-scale commercial breeding operations. And the other says, hey, uh, we run a pet store and mm -hmm. we have our standards we have to meet and all this kind of sure. stuff. So I'm not persuaded we need to do anything. But you did mention, Boz, you mentioned animal control. I don't know if our animal services department has anything to say about this or any information that would be helpful for us. I, I don't know if there would be. I can't answer that now, yeah. but yeah. Yes, can you just contact them and say if they can do something or not? 
I guess for my purpose, um, maybe this would be good instead of a work session, a memo from staff in terms of, I, I think this was generated, as I understand it, the conversation that was up in Cedar Rapids, you know, they are actively banning it. And then the question was, well, what do we do here? And I think you're right, Jim, this is a complicated issue. I mean, this is someone's business that they followed the rules for a long period of time. Um, standards do evolve over time. So I just think we need to get some facts and information about about the issue. And if there are some tweaks that we can make, maybe we could just get it in the form of the memo. If the memo persuades us that we don't need to do anything more, then we just sort of leave the status quo. But you know, I think of our, our late friend, Kurt Michael Fries, talked about slow food. I think slow policy is going to be very important in this, that so we don't make any sudden changes. So I would at least like to see a memo from staff, maybe reaching out to Cedar Rapids, seeing why they think it was necessary, allowing our friends from Petland to sort of respond and tell us maybe why it's not necessary. Um, but I don't think we need necessarily a work session at this point. I don't know what people think about that. Well, I, I think this I is like a concerning. Oh, okay, this yeah. is a concerning issue. But my thoughts on this were that um, we basically have the the one um, business in Iowa City, whereas Corville has two major uh, stores. So I think that if we ourselves, as the city of Iowa City, did anything, it would be rather ineffective and not very efficient, uh, considering Corville has has two of them. Uh, it is something I think we need to keep an eye on and keep our ear to the ground about. I'm not sure what we gain by dumping this on staff to generate another memo. Um, in reading all the information that was in there, it's, it's very clear that there are different viewpoints um, about the regulatory industry, what would happen if we, if we said that they can't sell from large commercial producers. There's a question whether all large commercial producers are, quote, puppy mills or are respectable, good breeders who care about their animals and treat them properly. Um, there certainly has been a lot of question about the funding of the USDA and the extent of their inspections um, of a lot of the breeders. There's no question about that. I don't, I don't feel that staff is going to be able to get information on a complicated issue like this with a lot of different perspectives that are that's going to help us with an answer. Um, I thought it was interesting that one of the articles or letters in there was from somebody who used to be a head of the American uh, Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, who had really, assuming that that was a legitimate letter, I'll take it at face value at the moment, um, had totally flipped his position in terms of looking at a lot of these breeders. and. It, if you question where I'm coming from, I'm an animal lover. I've had dogs since I was a kid. I've had dogs since before I had kids, once I was married. Um, and the mistreatment of any animal I find very troublesome and disgusting. But I think this is a complicated issue. And I, I just, I'm concerned about dumping another topic on staff to give us a memo that's not going to give us any answer to how we move forward on this. And without a way of doing it that can confirm uh, that a business owner is is doing it in a proper way um, that's not putting an incredible amount of extra burden. Again, if you want to take them at their word, I was very uh, compelled by the fact they'll take people on their tours of the breeders with them, et cetera. Um, I don't see it as something that is uh, that we should be acting on or adding work to the workload to the staff. I, I think for me, I, um, 
I did a little talking to um, some of the individuals that were against, um, well, that are against puppy mills, you know, as they call it. And, you know, I think the perception and my walk away, um, I, I, I would encourage all of you to actually sit down and talk to them. Um, but the walk away is this. From their perspective, um, nationally, in order to really get at um, people, puppy mills that are not doing the right thing, their thoughts are, let's just stop, um, you know, pet stores from buying puppies because some of them want, some of them, not all of the owners, want to, you know, get by with cheap animals. Um, you know, buy them cheap and sell them for a lot of money. But it's not everyone. And so for me, when I think about Iowa City, and we're talking about um, an owner in Iowa City, we're talking about, we're, we're trying to, you know, stop them from being able to sell something, you know, that they've like put poured their heart and soul into. Now, I can't vouch for them, only they can tell you from their perspective, um, their values and stuff like that as they've wrote in their notes to us um, as counsel. So for me personally, um, I think staff could do a memo, but I think it, it really is a one-on-one -on -one conversation um, with the people that are against puppy mills um, and the owners, um, not only in our community but elsewhere, to really get your own um, sense of direction. I think that um, there's a lot of uh, perspectives out there. Um, you know, one of the things that the puppy mill um, you know, individuals talked about was taking out the middleman, and, and that's the owners, and they're saying, if you take out the middleman, then um, Iowa Cityans can travel and 200 miles to find their puppy, go to these puppy mills, and then you'll see the condition and make the decision for yourself. Well, one of the challenges there is um, if, if I went to pick out a puppy, one, I don't know if I'm actually looking at the real conditions because they can show me what they want me to see. I believe that um, owners are, <laughs> they have experience in going to a place and seeing above and beyond what a regular person can see. So for me, you know, the puppy mills, I, I would suggest that everybody just speak to, you know, do your own research, talk to people. Um, I, I think we have an owner in our community that is dedicated to providing good puppies. Um, and that doesn't mean that they are without concern at times. Most businesses have concerns at times. And so I, for me, I'll just leave it at that. We, we do have someone coming to do a presentation. It's Ron uh, Solzred. Yeah, from the, mm -hmm. when? Yeah. During the formal from, from, tonight. Oh, from the okay. business downtown. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm not persuaded uh, that uh, there's a serious problem in Iowa City that we need to do something about. If somebody can persuade me with sure. evidence, uh, you know, then I'll go that way. But I'm not persuaded yet. I don't think we need to do anything. Okay, I let's go to the next one then. Okay. Ed Gay asked on letters about potential of going meeting. I'm sorry, which one? Ed Gay. H A. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, Austin's. Uh, 
is here. Um, I can quickly talk about it. So essentially, um, we, we I read an article um, that from Ames essentially, and Ames and Iowa State do a um, a joint meeting between their student government and their city council to kind of talk about those issues that you might not talk about uh, directly at city council meetings and talk about student issues at large, um, more than just me, because I'm just one student, so it might, I guess, get a broader outreach to the student population and understanding issues. So the idea would be there would be a specified agenda um, about certain topics, and it would um, allow for an open conversation. Um, just wanted to let you get your thoughts and see if this is something you're interested and in wanting to do for next fall, spring, that Austin would obviously work on. I personally think it's an excellent idea. I'd be eager to participate. I, I think so, too, because when I read the article from, you know, Ames, I really like it, and I think we should do that. Yeah, we, we've talked about having conversations uh, with, you know, the student government. This seems like a, a very nice way of yeah. handling it. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely worth giving a shot. Sure. Okay, so Kelly, yeah. uh, maybe you could uh, help us find a time to have that kind of joint meeting sometime in the fall, you said, after yep. students come back? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Last one is it in. This will have to be the last one, I think, yeah. before. That's the last one, there anyway. Yeah, is it and Sarah Rivera and Affordable Housing Coalition about like collecting rent? I know that Jeff sent. Did you? you send me just just yeah. today, so it'd be in your late handouts. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know if this, you just saying that's illegal to do or. Um, I, I think there's I think there's concerns, and Sue could speak to these about requiring people to submit their rent dollars uh, or their, their rental amounts with a rental permit. Um, certainly, we could make it optional, um, but I'd have to defer to Sue on the legal aspects of requiring rental amounts on the permit. It will become like one of the questions on the application. Is that something illegal? Well, we, we can't interfere with the relationship between the landlord and the tenant. And that's we don't have the home rule authority to do that. How you interfere when we ask an, an, or on a question of like how much? We, we are requiring the landlord to tell publicly what they're charging the, their, their tenant, and I think there are concerns. If you certainly want a, a memo from, from Eleanor um, or one of us, we can certainly do that, but there are, there are concerns that we don't have the home rule authority to do that. Okay. I think it'd be very helpful to have that information, but I've heard this point many times before. Yeah, yeah. that will help us a lot if we can do. Okay, it's 19 or 18 till. I think it's probably a pretty good time to break, and unless there's like one very quick point that anybody wants to make about an agenda item where they need some information or whatever. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll adjourn this for till the formal meeting, which begins at 7, and then reconvene the work session after the formal meeting. I think there are two things we need to touch on, and, and I would suggest we not try to deal with anything else okay. on, on that. So I've got to find the right page here. There are things that I think the staff needs guidance on. Uh, get to the right page here. All right, so the first is the, so to get, to get started, so we're looking at the April 4th packet. 
then the April 11th packet. So uh, where is that? Um, April 11th. Oh, oh yeah, I, uh, IP number six, a request for information concerning a partnership with Iowa City Parks and Recreation concerning the Lee Recreation Center. So you'll recall that we received a memo from Julie Seidel Johnson indicating she had received, we had staff had solicited letters of interest from nonprofit groups interested in partnering on the, the use of that little part of, uh, of the Lee Recreation Center. Letters of interest were received from the bike library and public space one. They're included in Julie's memo and staff requests authority to negotiate a partnership agreement with the Iowa City bike library based on a lot of factors. So that's a question to us. I support the staff recommendation. I, I thought when you looked at the two responses, um, I just thought they had a really, really strong, both, both great organizations, but I just thought they had a really strong proposal, um, as staff mentioned, um, in a better place financially to do the renovations. And I just felt in reading them also that they would have a tendency to reach a lot more people mm -hmm. of a lot I thought so of too. a much a much greater variety of socioeconomic status, um, and so I felt that they would be a better fit for the rec center. And public space one, they have an opportunity up at North Market Square, correct? <coughs> That's correct. We're talking okay. with them about. One so I think reason. you're right, Susan. Two terrific organizations, um, but as I think about the bike library in this location. I figure of our socioeconomic goals in terms of justice, community exercise, our carbon emission, community well-being, the farmer's market, nonprofits. Our, I've always wanted to do a maker space. Well, I think that learning how to work on bikes is maker skills. So I think with this, and I think the fundraising is, is key, we could be achieving like nine different things that we want to try to accomplish all with one entity. And they're a very well-run organization. I mean, they really have passion, purpose, and good leadership. So I'm really thrilled um, that, that they're going to have this opportunity. And I'm equally thrilled that Public Space One will have an opportunity possibly in another mm -hmm. venue. I agree, and along with um, Susan mentioning um, the uh, broad community engagement, and that's that's part of the uh, Parks and Rec's mission is to have community engagement and advocate for the benefits of recreational involvement uh, with the general public. And what better recreation than to ride bikes? Since we're encouraging all the bike lanes in town. I got my bike from the Perfect. bike library, so should I Very refuse good. myself? Yeah. Perfect yeah. fit. Yeah. So it was uh, a, a great proposal. I bought it. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, have to recruit yourself. So. Yeah. It's also. <laughs> yes. I, I found. It interesting that what's, yeah, what is now a dead <laughs> will be not only enlivened inside but it's surrounding late. the structure. So it's it was really, really fantastic, and hopefully we find an opportunity for public one, yeah. public space. Their renderings of their ideas for that space were just mm -hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, really reassuring. Echo it all. Okay, so I think uh, yes. our opinion Public. is pretty clear. I want to jump bye, to the bye. April 18 packet to, let's see which item is it, uh, number, number, Eight. number, number, uh, I think it's number nine. Uh, maybe maybe I miscounted, but the employment status analysis. Nine. 
Oh, yeah. That's so, yeah. Mm -hmm. so um, uh, my notes say my brain cannot take this in right now. <laughs> Defer the topic to our next mission. Next meeting. That sounds good, Jim. Your brain's right. <laughs> this is um, th th this is an item that's fairly complex, and you, you shouldn't feel rushed to make the decision. We are we we can limp along and and continue to. F fill in that front desk. If you're comfortable making it tonight, great, but it's late. If you want to defer it, that's okay too. Is that really hard decision to make? Or? I, I, I want to understand it. And, and uh, frankly, you know, I, I wrote that earlier today, mm -hmm. not right now. And you know, my brain's fried right now. Sure. So I really <laughs> like to defer it so that I can read the thing and understand what's in it. And, okay, and, that's, yeah. that's fine, yeah. that's fine. I also would note that AFSME did have some representatives mm -hmm. here for the work yeah. session. They did not right. stick around, understandably. Uh, I'm so outraged. by deferring, you, you may give them an opportunity to participate. But, yeah, I think and it's that's important my, to hear from them. Well, that's my key point, is that throughout this process, I, I thought it was really going to be sort of a collaboration between AFSME and staff with the direction to staff that, like, we want this to happen, but leave AFSME and staff to figure out the details is, is my preference. But this one is is one position in particular, though, as well as the broad picture. But you want a decision on that yeah. one? Well, yeah, this is just one that we brought forward because we have a vacancy. Yeah. We've fully informed AFSCME. They've they, they saw the memo before it came out to you. They completely understand the analysis that we're doing, the positions that we're looking at. We we can't compel them to give you feedback. That they have to do that on their own. We can just make them aware of that. everything and. If they choose sure they to will. write you, my guess is they're going to choose to weigh in on some positions and maybe not all of them. And I did have a quick conversation with Ask Me, and it was a very positive one. And so I would encourage the counselors to reach out if you have questions. So I'm encouraged. Okay, everybody's okay with just deferring this to our next yep. meeting. So okay. it'll be in the next information packet or something like that. However. Yeah. Would you like us to carry all the information packets over, or just yes, this one item? Because there's a couple that there's, I want to. You've got a couple in there too. Just, just well, quick this question though. Oh. Maybe we could focus on what those two are and, and carry what? them over. Well, there's two that I wanted to IP yes. item number eight. I'm related to manufacturer housing. You know, updating the affordable housing policy, and the other is a little bit more idiosyncratic. Um, I don't have the IP number in front of me, but my um, IP seven from April. 18th on the at-large cat ordinance. Um, it is sort of topical, but I'll provide more details. So if we could just keep those in the packet and I can seek council approval at the next meeting. Right. Uh, can I just go back to number nine again, just real quick? In your opinion, Jeff, is it causing any undue stress? I know each of the departments is kind of sharing and uh, putting someone in that position at the front desk. Is it? Does it seem to be causing any undue stress? I mean, that's going to put it down another four, three, four weeks before we you could make a decision on filling that position. We handle vacancies all the time. Okay. We, we can continue <laughs> to handle this one. Good. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, also, I would like to add, you know, uh, the letter from Sarah Barron. I thought I can add this to what Rockney and I proposed. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk about this together, what you think. Uh, she why why don't we just do this? Yeah. Why don't we just list <laughs> yeah. all three of these info packets as part of our work session for next time? Some of them there's not much in, but then, I mean, if you just know you need to review these, because we haven't gone through the three 
yeah. info packets. Yes. Yeah. We've just done little pieces of them. As we I just want to, I don't know how you, we can add this to the, 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 the Which one are you looking the at? The Sierra Baron for the. Uh, it, it's the same as Councilman Cole's item. It's the mobile or the. Uh, no, but she wants us to form a committee and. Yeah, and yeah. That. So that'll be uh, IP8 on the 418 sure. info packet. Okay. You yes. Can, you can bring that, that one. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, you can you can get into study groups with that item. Sure. That's it. I think that's it. Oh, we can go home before midnight. That's <laughs> good. Yeah. Every Charlie so, wants to stay uh, here. We're adjourned from our work session shortly. Thank you.